0: Station XITN. Folks, we'd like to remind you that you're listening to the brightest spot on your radio dial, broadcasting to you from way down south. Where every other Sunday evening, more or less, we we'll follow the journey of James Lagrange, Alastair Strange, Penthesalea Shaggy Main, and friends as they investigate the question: is there an ultimate ground of being shared by humans? or are there fundamentally different perceptions of reality, which lead to different ways of speaking of spiritual or religious experience? James, this first picture of reality, what the manuscript calls multiplicity, has been all over the place, from ancient Canaanites to indigenous tribes of North America to conflict within the theology of Zoroastrianism to West Papoans who ritualize warfare. Well, before we open up the intricacies of Egyptian or Greek and Roman religious cultures, perhaps we need to slow down. Let's take stock of what features emerged so far from this model of reality that demands the presence of multiple transhuman entities. Right. So far I see our apprentice
1: having seven broad areas we can talk about. The premise is the idea that early humans perceived the world, their interactions with nature, its animals, with other human-like entities, in a fragmented manner, leading to an implicit umwelt that perceived multiple sources or loci of powers governing the behavior of these entities. The appeal of multiplicity, you might say. So first, the source or origin of the various powers in the world. This can take us to different creation myths, or the question of whether there are any. For the Canaanites first, then the Iroquois. Asking, is there a single primordial agent of creation? Multiple agents, or a so-called trickster who brings sometimes disruptive things into existence? or no actual agent, but something else. Second, the structure of a pantheon, or some more loosely organized corporate form in which various transhuman, and sometimes also human beings live, and the distribution of power within the structure of the pantheon. Third, the kinds of interactions that occur between transhuman beings and ordinary human beings? And in what cultural contexts? Family settings, gathering foodstuffs and hunting, work in the vineyards and fields, engagements with foreign cultures from migrations or conquests or warfare, hierarchies of authority based on kingship or other modes of control. To what extent were these interactions between divine beings and humans collaborative, or forced, by the gods. Here one begins to speculate about the significance of cultic ritual behavior and acts of sacrifice. Fourth, the identities and forms of various deities, gods, godlets, other transhuman beings. How are they visually represented in figurines or bas-relief sculpture? How were they spoken about in oral narratives that captured their physical attributes or character and actions? From what were their identities drawn? Was it related to their societal function? How wide was their personality banned? Did their personality show development over time? Why were animals or animal characteristics incorporated into the natures of many gods? Fifth, manifestations of the transhuman world in human culture. Did events among transhuman entities serve as etiologies for how social practices in human culture came to exist? Did they legitimize accepted cultural characteristics, or did they reveal tensions existing within a culture? Sixth, how the model of multiplicity created order in the world. Did it create a metaphor for what the world was in the human mind? Did it conceptualize conditions of the natural world experienced as regular and dependable? Did it give meaning to those that were chaotic and threatening? Seventh, the moral and ethical implications of the Umwelt of multiplicity. This concerns the possibilities of phenomena we previously spoke about. Does a model of multiplicity create a context in which humans feel they belong in the universe, that they are not alien beings, or that the universe is not fundamentally alien to them? There may be other categories under which to assess religious phenomena. As early people interacted with different conditions of nature and other groups of humans, they formed different models, different umwelten. Some will require different categories of analysis. In the next model, for example, locality, geography becomes a very important concept in understanding how a culture's basic perception of physical reality shaped its daily life. Let's start with the premise that an umwelt of multiplicity emerged from early humans experiencing the world in a fragmented manner. The premise has been developed in stages. First, from the proto-theory of the origins of human religiousness articulated in episode Eight; second, in episodes eight and 10, from William James' idea that humans differentiate and prioritize value and experience at the fringes of conscious awareness, and that this develops into an individual sense of what is meaningful, what is of value and significance in their lives. Now we can add another element to thinking about multiplicity that includes a biological perspective. Suppose we consider the entire spectrum of living things, from nanobes, the filamental structures found in rocks and sediments that are possibly the simplest forms of life, then prokaryotes, bacteria, and blue-green algae that lack a nucleus, finally eukaryotes, fungi, plants, animals with nuclei that encapsulate DNA. Species of living things differ vastly from one another at the boundaries of forms of life, but also within a single species such as Homo sapiens. Our life forms differ within its developmental progress from zygote to morula to blastocyst and wind up a collection of marginally functioning organs and ultimately ash. Now you can imagine or invent a singular human-like entity being responsible for the existence of all living things, and many cultures do. But is it no less reasonable to think different species of living things and the varieties of developmental stages within species admit to multiple non-human sources and origins? Or that there is no single origin, nothing in which anything like a human plays a part? In The Natural History of Religion, David Hume points to the multiplicity of human events, producing a sense of a fundamental conflict or unease with the world, especially those in which humans face conflicting patterns, powers of nourishment and destruction in nature. Natural events can be characterized by their very contradictoriness, the annual flooding of a river into a basin, it's the dependable annual supply of water needed to grow crops, but also an unpredicted, destructive torrent that washes away the life of the very crops it previously sustained. For Hume, these inconsistencies are the various and contrary events of human life. These events are the source of the dread of future misery and the terror of death set against an anxious need and concern for happiness. Hume explains that the absence of empirical knowledge of causes for such natural events gives rise to polytheistic beliefs. Early humans, Hume argues, postulated the existence of causative supernatural entities on the model of human beings themselves, on an anthropomorphic model. But on what basis does he read the minds of early humans, to clearly establish a commitment to human-like causation, as opposed to humans seeking intelligibility and strategies of response based on their direct experience, and extracting from experience ways language might bring unpredictable contradictoriness into the sphere of human meaning. Hume's generalization of an universal tendency amongst mankind to conceive all beings like themselves is a psychological claim without an explanatory theory to support his conclusion that human dependence on invisible powers possessed of sentiment and intelligence replaces their absolute ignorance of causes. Hume is correct in inferring from the wide variety of events that humans face, a domain of possible transhuman beings that has to be vastly multiplied, so every event experienced has its place connected with What Hume calls a crowd of local deities. In fact, the appeal of multiplicity in religious sentiments is that it gives every aspect of human experience at every level of social and economic existence a connection with a deeper layer of meaning in human experience. But it is simplistic to simply take for granted that local gods and godlets deities, and spirits, must be, as Hume argues, intelligent, voluntary agents like ourselves, albeit superior in power and wisdom. In fact, mythic stories about these supposedly supernatural beings often make it clear, and abundantly clear, they are not necessarily superior in power and wisdom, and certainly not superior in moral behavior in which case consistent ultimate causation of contradictory sustaining as opposed to destructive natural events remains unachieved, unexplained. One might think their unexplainedness could be accepted by humankind as long as their interactions with such events were at least found meaningful, Under Hume's reductionist interpretation of polytheistic religion, it is not surprising he characterizes human interaction with pseudo causative human-like entities as manipulative, whereby ritual and incantation, humans try to influence these deities in ways that change their own individual destinies. Hume proposes examples of magic-like rituals of manipulation drawn from Greek and Latin sources. But the question is, are these examples relevant to the individual's perception of the realm of multiple deities, particularly given the separate benefits for the vested interests of cultic priests who take advantage of other possibilities from manipulation of the gods
0: i want to tell you something about the appeal of multiplicity you know we supposedly intelligent humans may or may not be alone in the universe sometimes on cloudy nights it can feel as if we're alone but on starry nights when you can see all these gods and godlets and giants and monsters and other beings we know we're never alone in the universe It's like we're all going through existence together, and that is a good feeling.
1: Pantha, you are beautiful and wise. This also moves us towards the first question of the sources or origins of the various powers human experience in the world. Questions about beginnings raise the issue of whether there was a creation. In the Canaanite material uncovered, while El is called creator of creatures and father of man, who impregnates other goddesses and earthly women, there is no explicit cosmogony that could be called a cosmic creation narrative. There is debate about whether Baal's defeat of Yom, remember Prince C, is part of creation. It may simply be part of his struggle to acquire kingship over the gods. Perhaps there was some older creator myth from Egypt or India that predates the Ugarit stories. The Iroquois, on the other hand, have multiple, at least three, divine entities involved as agents in various aspects of creation. The Sky Woman, planting bits of roots and plants, and right and left-handed twins, each creating, respectively, pleasant and treacherous topographies on Earth. Think about speaking of all creation as a coherent totality, where the semantic implication is that there must be some creator, possibly human-like creator. Well, this is at odds with our understanding evolution as the continual mutations of species following their own paths largely through random variation, or from interactions with the changing environment. One feels compelled to say there is something wrong with the picture of creator here. Now if one should keep that picture, it would be as if, after initial instantiation of a species, the singular originator was utterly content to simply allow things to play out on their own independent of their own act of origination in which case it must matter not at all that some or indeed most species of living things are doomed either to extinction or subsumption with an entirely new species of being where connection to the originator is lost unless of course the losing of that connection is a way to make room for some kind of freedom of agency of living beings. The picture within the conceptual model of multiplicity may turn out to be more robust, more satisfying. Why not multiple creators? Even better, why not the suggestion that all possible species of living things have, in effect, always been around as possibilities, without creators, so that those that become actualized are consequences of various interactions of their elemental components or the immediate environment at a stage of development where it becomes possible for such an individual being to exist. All species of living things then have an equal intrinsic right to exist. All existing individual entities are equal in the sense of being logically possible. What comes to exist does not require the conscious or capricious choice of some creator who selects favored ones from among all logically possible beings to become actualized. Variation within species derives only from random genetic mutation and the causal effects of environmental change. You can categorize cosmogonies, creation stories of a culture's cosmic origins, in any number of ways. Creation myths carry characteristics of a particular culture, but they may also embody or reject characteristics of other cultures or religions with which its people have come into contact. Structurally, you might divide cosmogonies into three basic types. First, creation as an act or series of acts from a singular originator, an or-god or craftsman or mother. Second, creation from multiple originators, several perhaps competing pre-human entities, a trickster, tribal ancestors, the creator offspring of a primordial or-god. And third, no agent-directed act of creation, but instead the spontaneous emergence from, or division, or dismemberment of some primordial unformed state into that which has form. Examples of the first structure of creation cosmogonies are probably most familiar. The poem at the very beginning of these Investigaciones describes the primordial sea creature, Gunwa, whom the Melanesian people of San Cristobal and the Solomon Islands believed made the earth and its waters, storms and humans, and from his offspring brother, a yam to plant. The Blackfeet have a creator god, Napi, or old man, I learned this on a project at their reservation in Browning, Montana. I evaluated their community college and met with tribal elders to discuss income possibilities from wind farm. I had seen them on the North Sea between islands in Denmark where there are continual winds. A pencil factory on the rez providing employment had closed. While old man Nappy traveled from place to place, creating mountains and valleys, buttes and rivers and animals, and large rocks with his arms as he lay down to rest. Taking clay, Nappy fashioned a woman and child, suggesting the importance of women in Blackfeet society. In one story, the possibility of eternal life was settled by throwing first a buffalo chip, then a stone into a river. When the stone sank, Nappy announced death was universal— and people experience sorrow for one another. In another story, Nappy was portrayed as a disruptive trickster who steals the sun's pants. Cosmogonic myth types often commingle or overlap. You can see this in Mali and elsewhere in West Africa. The Dogon figure is an androgynous supreme creator deity, Ama who fathers two primordial birth sacks holding the seeds of a potential universe. The sacks open, and in a whirlwind scatter their contents like bits of clay from a potter's wheel, creating galaxies of stars and planets and moons. Ama has an incestuous relationship with Earth, producing a jackal in a failure to establish order, then the Numo twins appear to bring order by reconciling opposing natures. The locus classicus of a singular creator god is the Genesis chapter 1 hymnic account. This was framed in the context of the Israelites' nation forced exile in Babylon during the 6th century BCE. In Genesis 1, the priestly code, or P, version, as scholars call it. It refers to God as Elohim. A case is made against the world of multiplicity, the polytheistic beliefs of Babylon. Here one finds an explicit theology proclaiming a good creation, creatio ex nihilo, creation from nothing by a singular, omnipotent, benevolent being whose very thought brings the heaven and earth into being from an antecedent chaotic void. Genesis chapter two is a poet storyteller version of creation. Scholars call it the J or Yahwist version. J, the letter J is the German transliteration of YHWH for Yahweh. It's probably earlier, perhaps 10th century BCE, when Israel was under Solomon. Here one has a more human-like God and a less-than-perfect creation of a primordial garden, which the first humans disrupt and from which they are expelled. This suggests banishment from homeland is a particularly favored form of divine punishment. the concept of God of such a world is discussed extensively under the model of singularity. Some creationists presume the existence of other living worlds from which human life emerges. Epicurus, in a letter to Herodotus, wrote of the existence of infinite worlds, both like and unlike ours, a consequence of the infinity of atoms throughout space. Human life could be replicated or, presumably even come from such a plurality. But for this umwelt of multiplicity, are there creation myths involving distinct multiple creators? These are hard, but not impossible to find. The Hickorya Apaches begin with multiple beings called Hoxin. They existed before creation in a kind of dark, wet, womb-like world. In some versions, they create elements of the physical universe, then a procreative pair, Earth Mother, Sky Father. In other versions, their ruler, Black Hoxin, first makes animals out of clay and teaches them how to reproduce, eat, where to live, then, with the help of the animals, He creates humans of clay and plant pollen and minerals based on scratching his own shape on the ground. Or it is a dog who sketches in dirt its desire for a human companion. Either way, humans live with the animals and speak one language. Australian Aboriginal people speak of a pre-human dream time during which primordial ancestors in walkabouts create geographical features of the land, humans, and sites in which they live as a society. In Maluku, or the Molucca Islands of Indonesia, between Celebes and New Guinea, the Malay Papuan Seram people, who grow bananas along with tubers, speak of multiple primordial plant forms, bunches of bananas, From these bananas, nine original families emerge and descend from Mount Nunasaka to inhabit an area of West Saran. These original people begin with skin color differentia. Multiple creator deities are sometimes the immediate offshoot of an earlier procreative union of heaven and earth. As in the Nihon Shoki or Nihonji, the Japanese chronicles mythical history of Japan. The conjoined union contains seeds of creation from which, after separation of heaven and earth, there grows a male form deity, then two other males, then six more deities and Izanagi and Izanami, brother and sister, who from heaven thrust a spear into the sea and form the island Onagorojima, and subsequently the great eight-island country of Japan. Sometimes multiple beings of themselves unknown origin simply appear on the scene, as with the Kiowa people of southwestern Oklahoma. In their myth, the Kiowa come into the world one by one through a hollow log, There were many more than now, but not all of them got out because a woman whose body was swollen with child got stuck in the log and thereafter no further Kiowa could get through, accounting for why the Kiowa tribe is small in number. Creation by thought occurs among the Mayan people of the highlands of Guatemala, preserved in the Papo the Book of the Mat, the mat being a woven throne, it symbolizes communal unity. This myth involves several primordial creators, three gods, Hurricane and two thunderbolts, descend from the sky to address Tepu Kukumat's sovereign feathered serpent who inhabits a watery void or sea engaged in thinking using the sky's powers everything that enters their thought comes into being the land of earth mountains trees the separate sky animals condemned to be food the gods seek creatures to praise them and attempt to make humans first from clay then wood The latter produces mindless beings who are subjected by Tepu to hurricane's flood that turns the wood people into monkeys. A second creation narrative describes the exploits of two hero twins, Hunepu, blowgunner, and Chabanku, jaguar deer, and their victory over the lords of Chabalba, the underworld. The Great Plains Osage Indians begin with people living in the sky. When they ask the sun and moon about their origin, the moon sends them floating down to earth, which is only sea, without a place to land. An elk, floating down with them, falls into the waters and calls upon the winds to blow the waters away. Land appears, and from the elk's hairs plants and trees grow. Finally, the Sumerian-Babylonian Enuma Elish we've already mentioned. It dates from Hammurabi's time, around 1900 BCE, but uses Sumerian god names. Its main purpose is not origins, but praise of Marduk in explaining his rise from a great local deity to head of the Pantheon, thereby honoring Babylon as a great city. In the opening lines, Enuma Elish Lanabu Shamanu, when the heaven above had not yet been named. Multiple beings, Apsu, ocean, and Tiamat, the primeval waters, together produce other divine forces, Lamu and Lahamu, silt and slime. Anshar and Kishar, horizons of the earth and sky. Anu, authority of heaven, and Ea, earthly waters and wisdom. These offspring forces begin to create order in the chaotic world, but they become rebellious. After a failed plot to slay their begotten god forces, Tiamat withdraws, while Ea slays Apsu, and then later produces his son Marduk, and it is Marduk who ultimately splits Tiamat's body and forms a world. For the third type, the creator-less coming into being of the world, one can consider the idea of Hiranyagarbha. This is the golden or universal womb of Vedic philosophy, which the early Upanishads call Brahman, the soul or principle of ultimate reality of the universe. The womb floats in the dark emptiness of non-existence until it splits into Svarga, the celestial abode of the Devas, and Prithvi, Earth. Contemporary interpretations of this primordial cosmic egg have led to associate it with cosmological theories of creation from a single point without a personal creator, as in the Big Bang theory. In the Egyptian cosmogonic myth, Atum is the name for pre-existence. Its meaning is both nothingness and completeness, or being everything in its state of not yet being. In a metamorphosis of self-fertilization or emanation, Atum produces an initial divine couple, shu, the air, and tefnut, moisture who in turn produce Geb, earth, and Nut, sky. The myth is associated with Heliopolis, the original mound on earth, on which the emanations received the Ka, or embrace, in which the power of Atum was realized. This myth is not an act of creation by a willful agent, but a spontaneous coming into being of the cosmos. The Egyptian term HPR, written with the picture of a scarab beetle, means roughly coming into some form. It is a sui generis property of Atum, So Atum, in a sense, forms itself into a cosmos. Accounting for the origin of existence was problematic for Egyptian religious thinkers. Withholding intentional personal agency from the concept of atom It is perhaps better to think of a twin nature of Atom. Atom designates unformed form and Kepre, the changed form or formed form. The two are logically connected aspects of the same primordial state. Perhaps like the quasi-philosophical principle that given an infinite plenitude of time, formed existence will occur from unformed being, if what is formed is logically possible. At some point, and not clearly on what basis, Atom also became represented in terms of royal kingship. Atom was the first king to rule over the cosmos that he himself had become. Shu is successor to the throne, followed by Geb, then Osiris, until slain by his brother Seth. Horus son of Osiris and Isis, becomes incarnate in each earthly historical king. While the earliest idea of a cosmic egg may derive from Sanskrit scriptures of Vedic philosophy, versions are found in other cultures where a world hatches from a kind of egg lying in primordial waters. In the Greek Orphic tradition, a cosmic serpent-bound egg of Kronos hatches hermaphroditic faunus, who in turn creates other gods.
0: Okay, James, but we should begin to wrap this episode up.
1: Right. But for those like me with a passion for things relating to the Solomon Islands, I was in Rarotonga in the Cook Islands, teaching guards and staff at their small 50-bed national prison, EMS, emergency medicine, and violence de-escalation skills and getting roped into participating in parole hearings, I was told of a Polynesian myth from Mongaea about a primordial underworld, Aveiki. This was described as a vast hollow coconut shell in which a mother goddess, Varimati Takara, dwells. Aveiki is the womb from which the first man, Avatea, was created, a bimorphic half-man, half-fish, who brings light to the world. Now, the idea flipped over to the largely Melanesian Solomon Islands and got transformed in an interesting way. Locals from the Solomon's ethnically Polynesian province of Renel, Mongava, and Bologna, Mungiki, they connected letters in their names to make the word Avaiki in the colloquial expression the Avaiki way. This meant doing things the Rentalese way, the old-fashioned way, reflecting family lineage, history, reflecting their ancestral spiritual homeland, their cultural heritage. Now, the current Solomon Islands government website uses a vaguey to address the global health threat of NCDs. These are non-communicable heart disease, cancer, diabetes, respiratory disease big problems on the solomons the government website announces Renell and balona province taking ncd to battle the avakey way it says think healthy stay healthy and act healthy imi tugada for stopham ncd avakey way the Renell and balona province war against ncds also coincides with SOLPEN, an acronym which stands for the Solomon Island Package of Essential Intervention for NCD. This trains provincial doctors and nurses and disseminates information for the community. So the Avaki way has turned tradition into the cooperative way. The Evaki Way has engaged moral awareness to transform a society that has been suffering various kinds of decline from conflicting economies weakened leadership as well as disease perhaps the cosmic egg has hatched a new creation based on science
0: maybe it has james maybe it has but let's say goodbye for now continue with the other areas of multiplicity in the next episode.
1: Yes, Fred, thanks for reining me in. It's easy to go off onto the many uncharted paths on the shore of this dark island.